So just before I begin the formal talk, just a little reminder about practicing during the talk. About seeing what it's like to be here during the talk. Being in contact with the living reality, the living presence that hears the talk, knows the talk, understands the talk, likes or dislikes the talk. I'll begin with a quote from the Buddha. He said, the gift of truth is the most precious gift and the taste of truth is the sweetest taste and the love of truth is the greatest love. The gift of truth is the most precious gift The taste of truth, the sweetest taste, the love of truth, the greatest love. And I'd like to speak a little bit about truth tonight. Truth has a multi-leveled place in the Dharma. And of course, you all know that one of the translations of Dharma itself is truth. The truth of the Buddhist teachings, the truth of the way things are. It's all implied in Dharma, in the word Dharma. And of course, the Buddha called the core of his teachings the Four Noble Truths. And there's also the in the Ten Paramis and the perfections, one of the perfections is the perfection of truth. And in the precepts, the precepts are um, based on truth. Um, and right speech particularly is rooted in truth. And then there's another teaching some of you may or may not be familiar with called the two truths. The two truths. The truth of relative and ultimate reality. And as I was thinking about the talk this afternoon, contemplating it, I remembered that Gandhi... Gandhi's autobiography was called My Experiments with Truth. My Experiments with Truth. And it's one way we could think about what we're doing here, is we're experimenting with truth. We're experimenting, we're investigating, we're exploring. We're being scientists who are examining what's the truth. What's the truth of our situation? What's the truth of the human Reality. What's the truth of this moment? What's the most surface level truth? And what's the deepest truth? And this practice, and the, not only is the truth important in terms of the four noble truths and the perfections and the precepts and the Um, the um, two truths. But there's no mindfulness without truth. 
Mindfulness is impossible without truth. Have you noticed yet that you can't be mindful of something that's not true? Right? Like, okay, I'm going to be mindful of feeling great when you feel shitty. It's just not true. You can't, you can't do it. You can kind of, you know, maybe you smile a little and, you know, you try to make joy happen. But if you're feeling bad, that's what's true at that moment. If you're feeling scattered, that's what's true. If you're feeling unconcentrated, that might, might be what's true. If you're feeling angry, that might be what's true. If you're feeling doubt, that might be what's true in a moment. And to try and be mindful of something other than what's true is dukkha, is suffering. Points you to a different part of the truth mandala, which is the truth of suffering. And the truth of suffering, one of the ways we could understand it, the truth of suffering is based on not being willing or able or ready to face the truth of the way things are to be open to the truth of our own human experience. That's, that's called real suffering. Um, uh, Ajahn Chah would say it this way. He would say, um, to run from suffering is to run towards it. To run from suffering is to run towards it. To run from the truth, even a disagreeable truth, is to run to suffering. And what's, I believe, is beautiful about this understanding, helpful, uh, inspiring, encouraging for us, is it begins to reorient us towards what's true. And we see that what's true is the doorway. What's true is the path. The Buddha said, he said, by your own efforts, waken yourself, watch yourself, and live joyfully. Follow the truth of the way. Reflect on it, make it your own, live it. It will always sustain you. There's a reorientation, a reorientation towards the truth, even the difficult truth, even the hard truth. What they sometimes, people talk about is tough love. Being willing to see what's here, whatever it is, whatever is true, even if it's not the ultimate truth, but even to see what's here now. And of course, the, the same orientation is not just in Buddhism, in the Western religions. They say, the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. And it's, it's true. <laughs> That's what I like about truth. It's true. Things that are true are true. And so this, there's an implication here. When we see that the truth will set us free, there's an implication that I find important. And as I was saying, inspiring, encouraging. And that's that we don't have to be afraid of reality. We don't have to be afraid of what's true. We don't have to be afraid of ourselves. 
We don't have to be afraid of what's in here. We don't even have to be afraid of what's out there. It's all part of the truth. And again, we'll look at both the surface levels and the various levels of truth. We'll look at the what's called relative and ultimate truth and how they intersect. A yogi came in um, to an interview today was talking about um, their experience of hitting a really hard place. Felt like the bottom of a very hard place. And there was a lot of despair and agony and sorrow and grief. And um, But she said something very interesting at a certain point. She said, you know, it's true. It's actually pleasurable to get here. There's something pleasurable to get to the truth. To not turn away, push it away, deny, resist, fear. Even though it was painful, there was something pleasurable because she was there. And she was there with what was true for her in that moment, which was really over the last 24 hours. And if you pay attention, if you look carefully you may find that part of our suffering is not being willing to be with what's true. Even if it's our boredom, our irritation. Often we'll try to overlay, we have ideas about how we should be. We have images of how we should be. We have ideals about how we should be. And Buddhism, unfortunately at times, what we'll do with it, what our personality will do with it is overlay those ideals on our experience so that it, it, it separates us from what's true. And we start trying to act some way that's compassionate or equanimous or wise. God help us. <laughs> when in fact the truth Our orienting towards the truth, being willing to be with what's true, being willing to open to it, to experience it, and see that we have the capacity to relate to it very directly, very honestly, will actually ultimately bring us the qualities we seek. Whether it's wisdom, or equanimity, or emptiness, or compassion, or love, that those Qualities are inherent. So even if we start at the surface, as we begin to move to the depth, we will find what we seek. You are what you seek. You are what you seek, the wise ones say. As I said the other day, the whole Dharma sits here, right? Dharma being truth. You are the truth. When I told Anna I was going to talk about truth, she said, tell me the truth, Eugene. I said, Anna, you are the truth. (laughs) I'm presenting you here, Anna. Uh, Isn't the truth beautiful? (laughs) Another yogi came at some point, came into the interview and said, you know, here's what's actually happening for me is I feel really anxious about the interview. 
And then we stayed with that. We worked with that. And it wasn't, she didn't need to um, do something I once did. I'll tell you the story. It was many years ago and I was on a retreat with one of the senior Vipassana teachers. And uh, it, was, it was actually right after Jack Cornfield had asked me to teach. And he asks generally a couple years before you even start the training. So it was a few years before I started the training and I was on a retreat and this teacher knew I was going to teach and, and I wanted to, I was trying to understand something about emptiness and, and um, actually Anna was on that retreat and I went to Anna to talk about it and she said, no, no, go talk to this teacher. And, um, and, uh, and so I went to talk to this teacher and I got to the door and I got really scared. I got really insecure. But I went in and I tried to act like I wasn't insecure. You know, I didn't stay with what was true. I didn't acknowledge what was true, even to myself, really. And I started talking about emptiness and this and that. And, that, and it was just like, it wasn't, wasn't happening. It wasn't true. It wasn't real. And the teacher, she listened for a while. She listened and finally she said, uh, why don't you go to your room and think about that? And I went to my room and I just felt horrible. I was like, oh my God, I've embarrassed Jack and I'm just, you know, I'm horrible. You know, I could, and it wasn't, it wasn't that my insecurity was really the problem, but the inauthenticity I actually regretted. And so truth has this close relationship to real, to reality. And one of the beautiful um, attributes of contemplative culture is our being real is more valuable than how we look, than how we come across, than some image we think we might need to project. And we all do this to some extent or another. Some idea about how we want to be seen or should be seen. That's much less important than our being willing to be truthful, to be authentic, to be real. And it's, it's, uh, it's a privilege to, to even be able to touch a culture where that's so valued. Because our own culture, it's just way down on the list. You know, our greater culture, contemporary culture, conventional culture. And one of the other aspects that makes this important is our reality and our suffering, our insecurity, our, our, um, our, our broken hearts, our chattering minds and judging and commenting and talking all the time. This is our suffering. This is part of the Four Noble Truths, which I'll get to in a minute. But one of the values of this truth is that as we open to it, as we begin to see the truth of our suffering, is it becomes a doorway to compassion. And in this way, we don't have to do compassion. We don't have to make ourselves compassionate. If we open to the truth and we start to shed the layers uh, the, really the veils that obscure the truth of who we are in essence, then our compassion will actually 
it's just natural, our compassion. Our kindness is the most natural thing in the world when it's uncovered or unveiled, when our conditioning starts to fall away, when our habitual holding to some idea of who we are starts to let go, then our kindness can come forth naturally. It's from my teacher, Hamid Ali. He says, to be real, to be truthful, to be real, to be truthful, and to be truly ourselves is a part of the journey towards self-realization that often exposes our personal pain and suffering. Compassion is a kind, friendly presence that allows us to stay in contact with our pain so that we can deepen into rather than turn away from the truth, rather than turn away from ourselves. And so compassion doesn't just mean, oh, we suffer with others. It means we can actually experience our own suffering with kindness. And it's not easy to open to the truth. It's not, it's not how we've been trained. The training is much more towards some ideal, some image, some way we're supposed to be, some presentation, some role we're supposed to fulfill, some person somebody thought we should be. Or it just takes on all kinds of societal, it's bigger, I mean, there's familial, there's cultural, societal values that may not align with the truth of who you are. There's a lot of ideas about emotions in the conventional society. Mostly you really shouldn't have them. Or even in Buddhism, there's a lot of ideas about emotions in certain areas of Buddhism. You know, there's that book, um, Overcoming Destructive Emotions. Oy. It's actually a really fine book, but I don't like the title at all. I'm sorry. I mean, how about just, you know, we have emotions. We, we, it's just part of the deal, right? We have skin, like overcoming destructive skin. You know, I mean, what do you, what do you want to do? Overcoming destructive hairline, you know, or what, whatever it is. You've overcome, I know. <laughs> It's just part of the package. Or, you know, the idea that, like I was a a grief counselor for many years, and one of the biggest sufferings that people have was thinking, oh, they should be over their grief after two weeks already, right? Or a month, or five years. There's some ideas that's not grounded in reality. It's an idea. The reality, you're the reality, you're the truth. Your experience is much more valid than any idea. But it's, it's difficult. We're not oriented towards the truth. We're not taught to value the truth. We're taught to value it if it fits in with our beliefs or the cultural beliefs or the political beliefs. 
And so the hard truths are, people don't want to see them. Sun Master Dogen said, those who seek the easy way do not seek the true way. Those who seek the easy way do not seek the true way. And sometimes, actually there's a story I remember, just remembered about the Dalai Lama where somebody came at a big teaching and asked a question, asked, well, how, how, you know, this is all really good, but what's the quickest way to enlightenment? And he wept. He wept because he knows that's not the right question. That that question will lead to a lot of suffering. The easy way is not the true way. So one of the struggles we have at times as we come on retreat is we start to confront a certain level of truth. And it's the truth that our orientation is towards security and comfort. That just as animals, that's part of our animal nature. If you, if you watch the, the deer and the turkey, that's their orientation. They're looking for security and comfort. They want their food and they want to be safe. And that's about it. And maybe they want some other things I don't know about. But, but we have, part of us, we, we have some of that. Have you noticed that? You know, when you, you know, when the cushion's not right, you know, then you leave. Or, or if it feels a little too uncomfortable, really what we want is the comfort rather than the truth of the situation. It's not, nothing to even feel bad about. There's no judgment here. We want to see the truth. We want to see the truth. That's the beautiful part. We want to see all the, all the truths about ourselves. All that stuff we think is bad or something wrong. Because the truth will set us free. And so sometimes people misunderstand renunciation. They think renunciation means, oh, I can't have what I want, or I can't, you know, I, I have to give up things I really want, or, or it's, a, it's moralistic. Like they, there's some equation with renunciation and spirituality that not having means spiritual. That's also a misunderstanding about renunciation. Maybe more of a, of a Western value in terms of spirituality. But it's not really the understanding of Buddhism. Renunciation is not about morality at all. It's about redefining our values. It's not about being good particularly. It's about freedom. From Bhikkhu Bodhi, he said, The tool the Buddha holds out to free the mind and heart is understanding. Real renunciation is not a matter of compelling ourselves to give up things still inwardly cherished, but of changing our perspective on them so that they no longer bind us. When we understand the nature of clinging, when we investigate clearly with keen attention, clinging, holding, grasping, aversion, desire falls away by itself. 
In, the, in this investigation, our concern must not be with what is pleasant, but with what is true. We have to be prepared and willing to discover what is true, even at the cost of our comfort. Real security, this is an important, this is the the kicker line, the important line. Real security always lies on the side of truth and not on the side of comfort. True security is when we align with the way things are. When we find, when we discover ourselves in harmony with the truth of the way things are. Now, the way the Buddha articulated this very um, concisely and at the core of his teachings is the Four Noble Truths. That there is suffering, that there is a cause to suffering, that there is the end of suffering, and that there is a path or the means to the end of suffering. These are not... These are not... um, commandments, right? These are not the four steps. These are the four noble truths. And like any truth, like we began with, they're an experiment with truth. They're to be um, uh, engaged. There's an alchemy here, the alchemy of the four truths, that only comes alive with your participation. They're not to be um, uh, ingested whole. They're to be um, taken, smelled, tasted, chewed on, swallowed, wrestled with the four truths, the four noble truths. And there's, there's really two, um, two principles here that I think are important to um, acknowledge as we sit. And, and work with the four truths, because that's what we're working with here. Um, the first is the understanding. We want to understand what are these four truths, and how do they function, and what actions do we take to relate to them, to investigate them, to experiment with them, to explore them, and then to understand them at the deepest level. And if you, um, one of the ways the four truths are taught is that there's an action with each truth. There's an action with each truth. They're, They're not passive, these four truths. So the first truth, suffering, is to be comprehended, is to be understood. It's not to be understood or comprehended in, comprehended in an abstract way, but it, in its actuality. And you've been comprehending it, I imagine, right? You've been seeing suffering. One of the great ways to practice mindfulness is you can simply note suffering and the absence of suffering. You could just spend a period or a day or a week or a month and just notice suffering or the absence of suffering. My um, good friends, Kitty Saren Tanisara, um, um, who were former monastics, when we talked together, we actually taught very differently. 
because we teach, you know, we teach um, basically mindfulness, the four foundations of mindfulness, a bare attention, noting the, you know, bo- breath, body, feelings, sounds, experience as it comes and goes. They do something different. They, they actually teach, oh, you sit down, you just comprehend the four noble truths. You contemplate the four truths in your direct experience. And that's a very valid way to practice Vipassana. They were disciples both of Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Sumedho, Kittisaran Tanisara. So the first truth is to be comprehended, to be understood. The second truth, that there's a cause of suffering, is to be released, let go. It's not just passive, these ideas. They're active. The third truth that there is freedom from suffering is to be realized, is to be made real, is to be um, um, seen for what it is in your direct experience. Don't let yourself think that this third truth is far away. Don't think it's after 20 years of practice or when you go to Thailand or Tibet or Pay attention in your own experience when there's suffering, when there's clinging, when the clinging releases, what's there? What is that experience when suffering is absent? And then there are the ways, the, eight, the fourth noble truth, that there's a way, there is a path to freedom And it's to be cultivated. It's not simply to be looked at as a list. And so this is living truth. This is where the truth comes alive in us, in our experience, in our our mindfulness, in our direct knowing, seeing, tasting, touching, smelling. The Four Noble Truths are living truths because we are the Dharma. Now, let's see. As part of this living truth, we have the precepts. The precept not to kill, not to steal, not to misuse one's sexuality, not to misuse one's speech, not to misuse, not to intoxicate the heart and mind. These precepts, just like mindfulness itself, are impossible without being truthful. We have to be willing to look. We have to be willing to see what's the truth. How are we really in the world? How do we really act? Not as a basis for a judgment, but as a basis for freedom. The judgment part, if I thought the judgment part worked, I would say do it. It just doesn't work. The Buddha was very clear about his pedagogy. He simply spoke to what worked. If something didn't work, it didn't interest him. If it was skillful, use it. If I actually thought judgment, criticism, superego was useful, I'd say, oh, you know, criticize yourself all the time. But it actually, it doesn't work. 
And so all of these teachings are not given in the spirit of using it to judge yourself, but really seeing we want to see the truth. We want to see the truth of our limitations. We're all lim- I don't think anybody here is totally, completely, and fully enlightened yet. So that implies that there's some limitation in our understanding, in our awakening. There's still some identification with that static entity we talked about as self. One of the beautiful things about right speech is it's based in the truth. It's really the first principle of right speech is speech that is truthful. And there's a number of other principles, speech that is kind, or speech that is pure, or speech that is not harsh, or speech that doesn't gossip, or etc., etc. But speech that's truthful. And it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful intersection, really, of virtue, which we quite misunderstand in our culture. We don't even use the word much. It's a, it's, for me, it's a much better word than morality or even ethics. Virtue is what the Buddha was teaching in the five precepts. And virtue comes from the same root as virility. Because implied in virtue is a power. And it's the power of our integrity. You know, they used to say when, when uh, a person's they, they would say about a person who was truthful that their word was gold. Their word was gold. That, that there was a value to integrity that we rarely see in our culture these days, especially among our leaders. And I mean, you know, they're just so driven by trying to get elected or the polls or whatever that they've lost touch with the power of virtue of being, having integrity, honesty, truthfulness, veracity. And when somebody does have that, it is such a, it's so compelling. It so draws me towards them personally. Somebody who's willing to say the truth, even the hard truth, especially the hard truth. It's such a relief. Actually, I was thinking about Allen Ginsberg a lot because I, I thought I was going to give at least one or two other talks tonight till about 4.30 and, uh, until this talk all of a sudden just happened. It, it actually wouldn't have been truthful, wouldn't have been real to give the other talks. They just weren't speaking to me in a real way. And, um, but the, one of the talks uh, was about gratitude, and it was about, my, I originally was gratitude for Allen Ginsberg, and one of the things that I was always grateful for was that Allen Ginsberg had an amazing capacity to say what was true, even when it was a hard truth. And it, whether it was in the 50s or 60s or 70s or 80s, and it's not that I always agreed with what Allen said, I didn't always agree, but he was willing to say what was true. How the, he, you know, he, he, he said it as he saw it, in a very real way. And I always appreciated that from him. Or another person who I really just loved was Malcolm X. And Malcolm X 
was always willing to call it as he saw it and say what was true. And his truth changed, right? And that's one of the beauties of being devoted to the truth. It's not a fixed reality. Truth, that's why Gandhi said, talked about his life as experiments with truth and being willing to change as our truth, our understanding of truth deepens or, or, or is broadened. And Malcolm X was willing to really say some hard truths and actually when his, tru- when his understanding deepened, broadened, got even bigger than how he'd been before, he could let go of that and say that truth. And he did. And he, he died for it, actually. He died because he was willing to stay with the truth. And so this right speech really lines up with authenticity. You know, we love it when somebody walks their talk, right? It means they're authentic, that what they say is rooted in who and what they are. And it provides a basis for an understanding of the deepest truth or an actualization, that's a better way to say it, an actualization of the deepest truth. This is put very well by Bhikkhu Bodhi again. He says, truthful speech, and it's, again, this is a little um, dense, so maybe I'll read it twice, but truthful speech provides in the sphere of interpersonal communication a parallel to wisdom in the sphere of private understanding. The two are respectively the outward and inward commitment to what is real, to what is true. Wisdom consists in the realization of truth, and truth is not just a verbal proposition, but the nature of things as they are. To realize truth, our whole being has to be brought into accord with actuality. Our whole being, this is why virtue is also so important. Our whole being has to be brought into accord with actuality, with things as they are. Truthful speech establishes a correspondence between our own inner being and the real nature of phenomena, allowing wisdom to rise up and fathom their real nature. It's an odd sentence he's got here. I'll say it again. Truthful speech establishes a correspondence between our own inner being and the real nature of phenomena, allowing wisdom to rise up and fathom their real nature. Thus, more than an ethical principle, devotion to truthful speech is a matter of taking our stand on reality rather than illusion, on truth grasped by wisdom rather than fantasies woven by craving. Our whole being, and this is what the Dharma asks of us, is our whole being. So he's tying in what we would call conventional and ultimate reality. Wisdom and how we talk to our partners, how we act in the world. 
Sometimes people think that they can have wisdom and then it doesn't matter what they do. That's only a little bit of wisdom. We have insights, and if we can't actualize our wisdom, then we have some more work to do. That we want to be able, we want to get enlightened, but we want to embody that enlightenment. We want to bring that, our realization into the world, and especially as householders. This is our task. This is our dharma. This is our sadhana, our, our path. It's not simply to get enlightened, but to bring that enlightenment into the world. To live it as a living reality with partners, with children, with friends, with parents, with, with jobs, with politics. Ultimately, we bring the possibility of transforming the world if we can embody, if we can express our realization in the world. And you don't have to do anything about that. Don't, don't, I don't want to set up some idea, now you have to go embody your realization in the world, and oh my God, it's a big job. This is more just realizing or considering, contemplating the two truths. And the truths are that conventional and ultimate reality are not separate. This is from Nagarjuna. He said, the Dharma taught by Buddhas hinges on two truths. Partial truths of the world and truths which are sublime. Without knowing how they differ, you cannot know the deep. Without relying on conventions, you cannot disclose the sublime. Without intuiting the sublime, you cannot experience freedom. Should I read that again? The Dharma taught by Buddhas hinges on two truths, relative and ultimate. Partial truths, relative truth of the world, and truths which are sublime, ultimate truth. Without knowing how they differ, you cannot know the deep. Without relying on convention, on relative, you cannot disclose the sublime. Without intuiting the sublime, you cannot experience freedom. That freedom is to be found here. It's to be found in this phenomena that we call human life, that's sitting right here. And yet to to actualize it means to come into the conventional world. That they're not separate. How, how could it be separate if it's here? Because we are both an expression of the relative and the ultimate. Simple example. Thich Nhat Hanh, when talking about the two truths, he says, we shouldn't allow relative truth to imprison us and keep us from touching 
absolute truth. Looking deeply into relative truth, we penetrate the absolute. Relative and absolute truths inter-embrace. They both have value. And then he would pick up a piece of paper and say, this piece of paper is made totally of non-paper elements. Right? So relatively, conventionally, this is a piece of paper, right? Everybody knows that. If I walked out of here, I said to somebody, what is this? They would say, it's a piece of paper. Why, why are you asking? But we know that ultimate truth is in this piece of paper. That there's no thing, if we start to deconstruct this, it's made up of all non-paper elements. Wood, water, sun, earth, the efforts of people, machines made this, all kinds of things made this thing we call paper. That nothing is a separate static entity not this piece of paper, not us. In the simplicity of ordinariness, we may also discover the extraordinary contained within it. I always like what John Cage said about being alive and whatever he did, he said, I'm trying to become unfamiliar with what I am doing. Because the familiar uh, blinds us to the extraordinary. And yet, the familiar is part of the picture. It's part of the deal. This is an email I got from a friend of mine that I thought, some way it puts together the two truths really beautifully. I'd been teaching a retreat in Conception Abbey in Conception, Missouri, about a long time ago now, eight or nine years ago. And it was in the winter in Missouri. And actually Conception was the one hill in all of Missouri that I saw. It was about three feet high. And, uh, <laughs> And they built a a Catholic monastery there. And and there was a huge blizzard while I was there. And and, I mean, it was the kind of blizzard where the snow is going sideways. You know, it's impressive when that's happening. And, um, and And then the blizzard stopped near the end of the retreat. And then it was a beautiful day, the last day of retreat. And we left. And I got a a letter, an email from my friend uh, Ginny Morgan. And she had had a friend, friend named Ram Jyoti, who was a Hindu practitioner from Florida who'd come to the retreat. And she said, Dear Eugene, Ram Jyoti and I got stuck in a long line of traffic on Highway 71, revisited. We waited patiently while a snowdrift the size of an 18-wheeler was cleared off the road. What was lovely and quite appreciated by both of us was that even though we knew that Ram Jyoti would miss her plane, it was all just fine. You know, a certain kind of equanimity at the end of the retreat. And then she said, on the road to the airport, after the drift was clear, the car hit a patch of ice in the road. In a long, quiet moment, it began to turn sideways. 
I said, shit. <laughs> Ram Jyoti said, Ram, we both use the same tone of voice. There is no side of the duality that is better than the other. The car righted itself and we went on. We are truly just drops of dew trembling on the tip of a leaf. Beginning to see that the two truths sit here are us, the sacred and the conventional. For the last piece, it has to do with our reorientation. Sometimes people think they have to get rid of the self when they hear all the teachings in Buddhism, or, or the self is bad, or there's some problem about the self. Again, as I've been kind of alluding to, it's just part of the picture. It's like having skin. Maybe not the deepest understanding of who we are. It might not be the profundity of who we are, but it has its relative reality, its relative place. I mean, it's very hard if you think about what it's like to be a baby and you're lying there and everybody starts saying, oh, it's Eugene. Oh, look at Eugene. Look at Richard. Look at how cute he is. Richard. Oh, Richard's eating now, you know. Oh, Anna, she needs to go to the bathroom. Or, you know, they just keep, they keep calling you this name and treating you a certain way. And, you know, you're wondering, who are they talking about? You know, because you don't know that you're Eugene or Richard or Anna or, you know, Allison or Anne or Robert. We don't know that. We're just lying there. You know, we're kind of hungry sometimes or happy sometimes, but but the self, the idea of self, starts to we start to get it. Oh, I'm Eugene. And that's mom and dad and brother and sister and every and the whole rest of the world. And everybody's suggesting that's true. And it is true, right? I mean it's really good to know, okay, I'm Eugene and I know which car is Eugene's car and which house is Eugene's house and which wife is Eugene's wife and all that. You know, it's, that's important to know. But it may not be the ultimate truth. And so the truth, orienting towards the truth, devoting ourselves to the truth, starts to shift us around the whole idea of self we start to value something greater than our self. We value, we love, we devote ourselves to the Dharma, to the truth, to awakening. Again, from Hamid Ali, he says, there is an inherent drive towards truth an inherent desire to feel fulfilled, real, free. The impetus toward the realization is in all of us. 
It begins with the first stirrings of consciousness and continues throughout life, whether we are aware of it or not. As maturity grows into wisdom, this task gains precedent over other tasks in life, progressively becoming the center that orients, supports, and gives meaning to one's life, ultimately encompassing all of one's experience. This is our devotion to the truth. It becomes the center of our life. The the center, the place where we can find our true center. Because we won't find it actually anywhere else except in the truth. This sentiment is echoed by Ken Welber. He said, spiritual practice is not something we do 20 minutes a day or two hours a day or six hours a day. It's not something we do once a day in the morning or once a week on Sunday or once a year at Spirit Rock. Spiritual practice is not one activity among other human activities. Spiritual practice is not one activity among other human activities. It is the ground of all human activities, their source and their validation and their fulfillment and their liberation. It is a commitment to truth, lived, breathed, intuited, and practiced 24 hours a day. Let's sit for a moment, please. As Anna read yesterday from Ashvagosha, who said, whatever people do, let them put their whole heart into their task. Let them be diligent and energetic. And if they live in the world, not a life of self, but a life of truth, then surely joy, peace, and bliss will dwell in their hearts and minds. This talk was given by Eugene Cash at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on December 8, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed.